Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minkin, and I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is November 28th, 2022. My guest today is Dr. Alana Vincent. Alana is Associate Professor in History of Religion at Umeå University in Sweden. She studies modern Judaism, interreligious dialogue, religion, and literature. Today, we will be talking about the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism, a definition that is widely used to stifle criticism of the state of Israel and advocacy for Palestinian rights. For years, there has been a concerted, well-organized effort to ensure the adoption of the IHRA definition as enforceable speech code by many states and countries. The impetus for today's conversation is the current campaign at the United Nations for them to adopt the IHRA definition. Listeners to this podcast know that the IHRA definition is something that FMEP has focused on a great deal. My colleague and FMEP president, Laura Friedman, is a great expert on this topic and has created many resources of great use for any deep dive into the definition and into the efforts to redefine anti-Semitism to quash criticism of Israel. I recommend visiting the FMEP website and clicking on our spotlight on the IHRA to see more, to dig in deep. And before we continue, before Alana and I launch into our conversation, I want to read the definition so that listeners know exactly what we're discussing. The IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, wrote a definition that was intended to not be legally binding, but is now, as I said, a part of a, a campaign worldwide to make it legally binding. The definition itself is short, and it carries with it 11 examples of anti-Semitism that are meant to illustrate what anti-Semitism actually is. I'm going to read the definition and then a couple of the examples. So this is the definition. Quote, anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. That's the whole definition. And then there are the 11 examples. Seven of these examples refer to the state of Israel, and they define speech regarding Israel, specific speech regarding Israel, as anti-Semitic. These include, for instance, and I'm quoting, claiming that the state, that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor, applying double standards by requiring of it, meaning Israel, a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation, or, and again, I'm, I'm still quoting, drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. Those are just three of the examples from the IHRA definition. So now, Alana, let's talk. So a few weeks ago, you tweeted, now I'm quoting you, the IHRA must not become an international standard. You wrote, I have spent years defending the IHRA using the same argument the EU commission is still holding on to but a definition is more than the words on the page. The way it is interpreted and put into use also matters. That's what you tweeted. Will you tell us about your position on the IHRA 
How has your position changed over time? So I come to this conversation through my background in Holocaust studies and through having gone from Holocaust studies to working as an anti-Semitism awareness educator and campaigner, um, which means that for a great deal of my working life, um, I have been trying to explain the IHRA to individuals and organizations who are concerned about anti-Semitism or know they should be concerned about anti-Semitism, but haven't been exactly sure what practical form that concern should take. Um, the IHRA definition, as you've already said, is very focused on Israel-Palestine. And this is a serious problem, um, for example, for a lot of church groups that I've worked with and consulted with who have, you know, on the one hand, a consciousness about Christian complicity in the Holocaust and Christian anti-Semitism that they feel like they really should be working on, and on the other hand, a idea that their religious commitment to social justice should mean pro-Palestinian advocacy, or at the very least, not um, trying to say that it is out of bounds for members of the church, for clergy to engage in pro-Palestinian advocacy. And so I have spent years um, sitting down with people and reading very closely through the IHRA definition and say emphasizing things like this is not meant to be legally binding. All of the examples are supposed to be interpreted in context, you know, the example is to say that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor, like any incarnation of a Jewish state, not that you can't say that the current incarnation of the state of Israel and the current government are being very evidently racist. That's inbounds if we're reading this definition very closely and paying very close attention to what the actual words on the page say. And I, I, I know that some of the original authors of the IHRA definition would support that interpretation and have also been vocal about the fact that what we see in practice over these last several years, really especially since 2016, is a tendency towards not as much a careful and nuanced and let's 
really precisely parse the exact words on this page and think very carefully about the context in which statements that might look a little bit borderline have been made, but a lot broader um, tendency to just wave the IHRA working definition around and say, look, this is clear anti-Semitism. Um, and we see um, journalists in Germany being fired for writing articles that might have contravened the IHRA definition, which was never supposed to be a legally binding definition that you could contravene, right? That by itself is a misuse of the definition. Um, the Labour Party in the UK expelled um, a number of its Jewish members for anti-Semitism because of their involvement in Palestinian advocacy, which again, quote unquote, contravened the IHRA. And for me, when you start to see anti-Semitism weaponized to curtail intra-Jewish discussion and to curtail Jewish communal self-critique, then you really have gone a little bit around the bend, a little bit past any point of reasonable defense. Um, you've gone past the point where the idea that anti-Semitism is something that should concern us all and we should take constructive steps to identify it, understand it, and decrease it, if not eliminate it entirely. And to a point where you've constructed this idea of anti-Semitism that is itself becoming a weapon against Jews. And I, whatever we may or may not agree on about where speech about Israel and Palestine veers off into anti-Semitism, I think I would like to believe that we could all agree that politics which does not permit Jews the freedom of self-determination, the freedom of political association that constrains them into you know, this very narrow box of acceptable ways to be Jewish, that is actually fundamentally anti-Semitic. In fact, there are examples in the IHRA definition that very clearly identify that. 
as quite likely to be anti-Semitic. Was there was there a, a moment for you? Was there a, a something that happened where you saw the particular misuse or weaponization of this definition to silence certain people? Where, where you shifted? Part part of why I'm asking is that um, we've had Ken Stern on on our programs, one of the authors of of the IHRA definition, who is cautions vociferously against its adoption and mm -hmm. um, truly believes that it is that it is being used to stifle speech in ways that it absolutely should not be used. Um, yeah. And of course, and we have looked specifically at the implications for the IHRA on Palestinians and the, the silencing not only of Palestinian political speech, but also of Palestinians expressing their own identities, um, mm -hmm. Palestinian identity as as in as it exists as something that the IHRA could, that, that the use of the IHRA could find uh, is according to that, to this definition, anti-Semitic. So I'm, I'm curious specifically because um, it, is, it is rare that we speak with someone who spent time defending the IHRA and now has, has, has moved on your journey. If you wanna say any more about your particular journey, what moved you? to where you so, are now. I, I have been really aware of the, both the shortcomings of the IHRA as a definition, and I think I should also point out, the IHRA definition as written is really unhelpfully vague. Um, and actually, I found in my educational work really difficult for people to make sense of. So I've, I've been aware of those shortcomings. Um, and then again, as I said, you know, just watching the slow accrual of cases in which it has been problematically applied to the point that um, you know you have to eventually say, well, in my background um, in literary theory, you know, we say, you know, a text is not the words on the page. A text is the meaning that is created by the reading and interpreting community. If the definition is interpreted consistently in this overly broad way that restricts large swaths of political speech, that's that's not bad interpretation. That is the meaning of the text now. And we can't get past it. Um, I, however, also think that it's very difficult to talk about things unless you have some sort of working definition. And this, this is the impulse that led the IHRA to be formulated in the first place, right? It's one thing to say, oh, yes, anti-Semitism, it's a big problem. We should we should be more aware of it. We should do something about it. Well, 
then we have to be clear about exactly what anti-Semitism is and what anti-Semitism isn't. Um, you know, merely being rude to a Jewish person for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the fact that they're Jewish is not anti-Semitic. The reasonable policy goal of anti-Semitism um, educational work is not to create a world in which no Jew ever has a bad experience at any time for any reason. I mean, we should all want such a world for all of us, but you know, we're we're working on you know reasonable, achievable goals. The goal of anti-Semitism awareness is that no Jew encounters prejudice on the basis of their Jewishness. And and so a definition is a useful tool. Um, the point at which I felt able to actually say, well, okay, definitions are necessary, but this definition ain't it, is really you know, these, these past couple years, as we brought out the Jerusalem Declaration on anti-Semitism, which is a widely agreed upon, um, you know, amongst academics, correction to and nuancing of the IHRA definition. So we have the basic definition, um, which you know na narrows the field a lot. So where the IHRA definition um, is that you know anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Um, JDA says you know, anti-Semitism is discrimination, prejudice, hostility or violence against Jews as Jews or Jewish institutions as Jewish, right? So it's more critically useful. It doesn't contradict what the IHRA says. It just makes it clearer. And likewise, you know, the JDA came with a number of what well, we call them guidelines um, for interpretation. Before you go into um, those guidelines, though, yeah. um, yes. and, and I appreciate that you brought up the JDA, the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, and, and we're going to come back to that. But um, I, I want us actually, so most recently, you are one of 128 scholars of Jewish history and Holocaust studies who signed a statement, which we're, we're linking to on the website. We've all of the resources we're talking about, we're linking to on the website, but you signed a statement calling on the UN not to adopt the IHRA. So obviously the UN is a really important forum for this discussion. And there is a campaign at the UN to get the UN, a, a campaign led by uh, the Israeli ambassador to the UN 
to get the UN to, um, to pass the IHRA. But in your, you have taken a really active role on Twitter um, at this moment of this campaign. And I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about, um, especially because you were just talking about the, the, the necessity of having a, an effective definition, one that is specific and nuanced, which the IHRA is not. So uh, some of the defense of the IHRA comes from the European Commission's use of the IHRA and their official efforts to combat anti-Semitism. Um, so they promote a study called, uh, this is the study and we'll have a link to this too, it's called mm -hmm. Experiences and Perceptions of Anti-Semitism, Second Survey on Discrimination and Hate Crime Against Jews in the EU. And they say that this survey supports using the IHRA working definition as something that is victims-based and, and evidence-based. And, and, and according to them, and I'm quoting again, um, the EU's commissioner, the EU Commission's coordinator on combating anti-Semitism, um, Katerina, Katerina von Schnurbing, she said, um, and now I'm quoting her, the IHRA reflects what the vast majority of European Jews regards as anti-Semitic. This includes Israel-related anti-Semitism. In fact, it is the form of anti-Semitism that European Jews encounter most. So that's what she claims based on their research. And you actually responded and you responded on this question of whether the use of the of, of the IHRA is victim centered and evidence based. And so I'm asking you as a scholar, but really as a teacher, because I, I want to mm -hmm. ask you to, to speak to speak to our audience, as you would explain in the classroom, as you would talk to lay people, how, how is the EU Commission identifying and measuring anti-Semitism and perceptions of anti-Semitism? And what are the flaws with their method? Right. So the, the FRA survey um, is, and it is the largest pan-European survey on you know, Jewish life, Jewish identity that we have, which means that I spend a fair amount of time with it because part of what I teach is, you know, contemporary Jewish life and that kind of demographic data that the survey generates is important. So a couple things. Um, you know, first there's, we have to be aware of the sampling methodology for the survey, how they found people to respond to it. Um, and the sample for this survey was self-selected. Um, they recruited participants via advertisements in Jewish newspapers, um, via contact with synagogues, etc. Which means, you know, first of all, the chances of Jews who are not consuming that media 
um, or in those orbits. Being included in that sample are kind of low. Um, that's, that's a concern because actually, well, for example, a lot anecdotally, and I'll say this is anecdotal because precisely we don't have the data to confirm it. But for example, actually, a lot of Israeli expats don't move in those circles and may or may not, therefore, have been included in that survey. On the one hand, on the other hand, um, the sample did include somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, um, if I'm recalling the number crunching I did properly, of Jews who identified as Jewish based solely on their heritage, their ancestral connection. Um, and that very likely would include, for example, a number of practicing Christians. Um, it very, very likely includes, um, an, well, for, I mean, across all of their categories of Jewish identification, there is a very good chance that they were including responses from what so-called messianic Jews, which are evangelical Christians who have taken on the outward expression of Jewish religious practice because they think it feels more traditional and more like what Jesus or the early church would have been. We don't know how big either of those two groups are because the survey didn't take any steps to differentiate those responses. Um, but we do know that both of those groups are likely to have very different perceptions of and experiences of what anti-Semitism is and how it affects their daily lives. So to, I, this is a known issue, um, the Pew Research Center that does these kind of massive um, religious identity surveys for the US is sufficiently aware of this issue that their latest report on Jewish identity has this massive branching chart showing you know, the different ways in which respondents could have identified themselves as Jewish and the different ways that in the final analysis they counted or discounted responses to certain questions based on um, how people placed themselves in that matrix of identity. Um, so it is 
at the very least concerning to see a survey that is apparently informing public policy and legal restrictions on people's political activity that is not taking those basic steps that are taken by a similar survey that is never going to inform any sort of policy. It's just, you know, informational, hey, this is what Jewish identity in America in 2021 looks like. So that's that's one area of concern. Like I said, we we literally do not have the data to determine how serious that concern is because the FRA didn't ask the relevant questions. Um, but it, I mean, it, it could be in the final analysis not significant at all, but you'd still think they'd ask those questions. You would still think they would have some concern that the responses to a survey on anti-Semitism, if they are concerned about a evidence-based victim-centered approach, that they're actually collecting data from people who are likely to be victims of anti-Semitism. Um, second, the particular section that the EU commissioner um, on combating anti-Semitism points to as the evidence base for the IHRA definition was a set of you know, different kinds of anti-Semitism. And there, there were two questions. You know, first of all, how you know, do you consider this anti-Semitic? Um, there were responses about you know, how many respondents thought that each example was or was not anti-Semitic. And second of all, how frequently have you or you know, encountered this form of anti-Semitism? Here's the thing. Those statements were not drawn from pretext responses or you know, focus group interviews, or you know, they they weren't ex examples of things that survey respondents independently reported having encountered. These were a list of examples that were part of the survey. The survey makers decided what the relevant examples were, and they were all drawn from the IHRA. So, yes, of course, 
that section of the survey generated evidence that respondents had experienced the forms of anti-Semitism that were identified by the IHRA because that's what that question was designed to do. It was not, for example, um, seeking to identify other forms of anti-Semitism that the IHRA isn't as clearly focused on. It's really interesting to me, actually. I, I did do some digging in the survey because much, much later, they ask about um, whether people are, whether survey respondents are aware of and whether they consider it a problem that a number of EU countries are in the process of passing legislation to prohibit Jewish religious practices such as kosher slaughter and circumcision. And actually the rate of people saying, yes, this would be a serious problem is much higher than the rate of people responding in this earlier section of the survey saying that criticism of Israel they experience as anti-Semitic, right? So there's a little bit of the way that you frame questions and the way that you choose to include or exclude certain answers from the data really does shape the story that your responses can tell you. Um, so yeah, in this case, um, by focusing solely on that one question of the survey, uh, one section of the survey in which the questions are very narrowly focused on just the sorts of anti-Semitism that the IHRA ident you know, is good at identifying. That survey has created an evidence base, but that evidence base could only have been created because the survey makers had already decided that these were the relevant terms for the question they needed to ask. Thank you for that very, very clear analysis uh, and for explaining that so clearly and, and the ways in which um, power and policy are inter intertwined in the production of knowledge. Uh, in, in, in this question asking and in this creation of data that then serves the purpose uh, ser serves the purpose of, an, of, an, of, an, of enhancing this particular uh, expression of policy and this this form of weaponization of anti-Semitism. So I actually um, and we're we're coming coming towards the end of our 
of our time together. And you already brought up the declaration, the Jerusalem mm -hmm. Declaration on Anti-Semitism, um, to which you're a signatory. This is a, a, a definition um, that was released a couple of years ago. It was developed mm -hmm. by scholars and, and signed by several hundred scholars. Uh, it's a definition and guidelines. Um, mm -hmm. Will you talk to us a little bit? You already, you gave us a specific comparison of how the IHRA is, is vague versus the JDA, the Jerusalem Declaration being very specific and, and therefore actually being much more useful in terms of, of identifying and, and countering anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. um, will you talk to us a, a little bit more about why you think this kind of nuance that the JDA offers is, is particularly valuable for um, identifying and understanding anti-Semitism? So, yeah, what I what I started to say when I started to sidetrack myself earlier um, was JDA has 15 um, guidelines and they're they're grouped into sets of five. So the first five are just general guidelines on you know, more stuff that you should probably know about anti-Semitism, like it's racist to essentialize or to make sweeping, sweeping negative generalizations about a given population. And what's true of racism in general is true of anti-Semitism in particular. Um, but the second and third sets of five um, guidelines are particular to Israel-Palestine. Um, primarily because the IHRA's examples, as you've already said, seven out of 11 of its examples, and the vast majority of interpretive work around the IHRA has been focused on Israel-Palestine. So what the JDA does is give a group of examples of speech about Israel and Palestine that are on their face, probably not anti-Semitic, and a group of examples that are on their face, probably going to be anti-Semitic, which is, again, adding detail and clarity to what the IHRA already says about the need for any of its examples to be contextualized. So, um, you know, for example, um, holding Jews collectively responsible for Israel's conduct or treating Jews simply because they are Jewish as agents of Israel, that is very probably, and I'm, I'm being, um, really academic and hedging things there with the probably, I kind of want to say, yeah, that's anti-Semitic. Um, I'm really having a hard time imagining a context in which that would not be a fairly straightforward example of anti-Semitism. Um, I think one of the controversial 
points in the Jerusalem Declaration is actually point number 15, which says political speech does not have to be measured, proportional, tempered, or reasonable in order to be protected under Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights and other human rights instruments. Right? Criticism that some may see as excessive or contentious or is reflecting a double set standard is not in and of itself anti-Semitic. Um, the line between anti-Semitic and not anti-Semitic speech is different than the line between reasonable and unreasonable speech. I think that's really an important distinction to keep in mind because you know, otherwise it becomes very difficult for people like me to properly do our jobs of anti-Semitism awareness because every time we walk into a room, we're faced with people saying, so you're here to tell me that I can't say anything about anything because everything's anti-Semitic. And, and on the one hand, if that is a problem you encounter frequently in your life, then I would like to invite you to reflect upon um, the kinds of speech you are choosing to routinely engage in. Um, but on the other hand, if that is a perception that is being formed by legitimate observation of the ways that a definition of anti-Semitism is being used to curtail otherwise legitimate speech, no matter how misguided or unreasonable it may be, that's a problem. And that's not just a problem for people wanting to engage in that speech, that's a problem for people who are actually serious about combating anti-Semitism instead of reinforcing anti-Semitic stereotypes. Thank you. That was very, very helpful. Um, and, and it's helpful that you walked the audience through a little bit that, that the, the JDA, the Jerusalem Declaration, has a, a definition that is specific and nuanced and then has basically three sets of guidelines, one that is general, one that is what they say Israel and Palestine, examples that are on the face of it, examples that on the face of it are anti-Semitic, and you went through two of those, mm -hmm. and then five more uh, Israel and Palestine examples that, that on the face of it are not anti-Semitic, whether or not mm -hmm. one approves of the view or action. They're very specific here, um, including that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement is, is not in and of itself, or uh, the, that these, these no. boycott, divestment, and sanctions are not in and of themselves anti-Semitic, or that supporting the Palestinian yeah. demand for justice and the full grant of their political, national, civil, and human rights as encapsulated in international law, that is not anti-Semitic. There's, it, go, on it goes on. Face. Right. Yeah. I, and, you know, let me be clear. People can and do engage in anti-Semitism while advocating for those things, but there are also ways to do that advocacy without 
engaging in anti-Semitism. Right. Right. Yeah. Of course. And and specifically, the JDA also talks about critiquing or opposing Zionism is not mm-hmm. on its face anti-Semitic, which is a, a direct uh, corrective, to use your word, of, of a corrective to the ways that the IHRA has been interpreted. Um, the IHRA yeah. is being has has been weaponized to say that anti-Zionism is always anti-Semitism. Um, and the JDA is the, is basically a direct counter or or corrective to that. Um, yes. So let me ask you, this is my one last question for you. So thank you for for talking us through all of this. And my you talked in the beginning and and you 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 walked us through um, how your journey around the IHRA mm. and what has shifted for you and in in, in, mm. in terms of um, really moving into uh, thinking about the how not just the words on the page specifically but how they have been used how the IHRA is, hmm. is used as a as 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 a weapon um so given your journey do you have any advice or warnings or lessons um for any of our listeners or or for any other scholars who might be now in a similar place to you where you were when you supported the IHRA and I, I know that's a funny thing to ask because this whole podcast has been an answer to that question. Uh, these are your words of warning. Um, but any last, if you were to speak to someone right now who is wrestling with that, with with the, with that question around the IHRA, any last words for them? You know, I think one of the biggest problems with the IHRA right now is. It has become, in many places, a symbol. Right? People, you know, organizations, countries, governing bodies adopt the IHRA because that's their symbol of being serious about anti-Semitism. Problem is, when we focus too much on symbolic actions, we lose track of the actual material conditions that those symbolic actions are meant to address. And I think that that is that is where we're at with the IHRA. The symbol of adoption is now you know, it's become the one weird trick your organization needs to know so that it never has to answer any awkward questions about anti-Semitism ever again. Um, a couple years ago, I got a frankly unbelievable letter from um, the vice chancellor of the university I worked for at the time, who I will not name, Um, who had proposed job cuts in my department that would possibly have meant that Jewish studies would no longer be taught. And in response to a letter protesting this, the vice chancellor said, I am proud to have, you know, adopted the IHRA for the university and therefore any criticism of staffing decisions 
having an adverse impact on Judaism is completely unfounded. No one is more concerned about anti-Semitism than I am, right? IHRA, tick box, move along, no more questions to ask about the status of Jews, Judaism, or relations with Jewish communities here. That's the wrong answer to the wrong set of questions. The questions we need to be asking about any form of anti-Semitism awareness and prevention is what is this actually doing to improve the lives and the sustainability of you know Jewish individuals and Jewish communities in this circumstance? That's a lot harder than a one-size-fits-all policy adoption, but that's where the work is. That is great. What a, I really, really appreciate your time, Alana. I appreciate your explanations and your expertise. Um, thank you so much for walking us through all of this, and that was a really powerful place to, to where you delivered us uh, just now at the end. So thank you so much, Alana, for your time. And um, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. You can visit our website, www.fmep.org to find uh, the links to many of the resources, to all of the resources that we talked about in today's podcast, um, but also to subscribe to many of our resources and publications uh, and find more information on the IHRA, on the weaponization of anti-Semitism, and of course, um, far more information on Israel-Palestine. Um, so go to our website, www.fmep.org. Uh, I am Sarah Ann Minkin. I look forward to the next episode. Thank you so much for today. Take good care. <laughs>